Hello and welcome to In Person with Paul on Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction and I interview authors about their latest novels. Today's a bit special as I chat to two Icelandic authors, Jonina Leosdottir and Solvik Polsdottir, about their novels Deceit and Harm. And we'll be joined by their translator Quentin Bates. I'm going to start by asking Quentin about Coralus Books. He's also part of the publishing team. He's fairly modest on this subject, as you'll hear, but I want to say that Coralus is an exciting new publishing venture, a labour of love, clearly, that operates on a shoestring, but brings some fine writing from Romania, Iceland, and one book from France to the UK. Which reminds me, you can also listen to my interview with Bogdan Hrib, the Romanian author on Crime Time FM, and I'd urge you to catch up with that because he's a really interesting guy. And I look forward to much more from Coralus in the future. Incidentally, though it's not the topic of our chat today, I do mention Quentin Bates' own novels here, and they're set in Iceland. The Gunhilde Mysteries are very, very good and well worth checking out. Anyone from Iceland will probably by now will be horrified by my pronunciations, and I apologise for that. I think the chat could have been twice as long if I tried to get it absolutely right. And I probably still would have failed. Anyway, back to topic. We'll be discussing Janina's novel, Deceit, and Solveig's novel, Harm. And what you'll find is that these are two authors from Iceland who have very distinct and original takes on what we probably lump together as Scandi-noir. So let's join Janina, Solveig and Quentin. Well, hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Solvig, Janina and Quentin. Hello. Hi. Hi. Lovely Thank to have you, you all here. Me. Oh, you're all very welcome. Um, Quentin, if I could start with you, we're going to be discussing the two novels, Solvig's novel Harm and Janina's novel Deceit. Um, and you translated both those novels and they're published by Coralus Books. I'd just like you to tell us a little bit about Coralus before we start, if you could, please. Um, it's... Uh tiny tiny nano publisher <laughs> well i've read all your books there you go you've read our entire earth so it can't be a very big publisher well let's hope i can't say the same thing in 10 years time well we shall see <laughs> <laughs> now we have a, a it's a small group of us who got together and started this little venture with the intention of publishing people who struggled to find a place in with mainstream publishers uh, so we have Romanian, Icelandic, French, and a Spanish author coming. Ah, oh, Spanish one. I didn't know about that. I know you've got another Romanian author, Tony Mott's coming this year, isn't Tony she? Tony Mott's coming this year, yes. Yeah. So yeah, that'll right. be round about the middle of the year. And there was the French novel as well, Little Rebel. Little Rebel, yes. That was fun. Yeah. Oh, I enjoyed that. I did enjoy that. Anyway, so you produce the literature in translation. Um how about a quick word about your background as well? Because obviously um, we want to know you've got these links to Iceland anyway, and you write your own novels and they're set in Iceland too. Um, was Cold Breath the last one? Cold Breath was the last one, yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and the novels. Um, I lived in Iceland for a long time, um, which is why I can sort of struggle through the language. <laughs> Does he struggle <laughs> through the language? He's been too modest. I think so too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I lived there for, for quite a few years and then came back here and I've been through a variety of incarnations as a 
seaman and a journalist and then into other aspects of writing and then i was shanghaied into translating and right. it, so I, yeah that seems to be the niche at the moment is i can i, I translate because i haven't written any of my own for quite some time yeah a few years now well a couple of years anyway yeah it's been yeah no it's interesting though because the thing about being in the culture means that you're much more closely connected even than if you're just very good at the language you know yeah, yeah the cultural aspect is is very important as well um because you have to know you know which is the posh newspaper and which is the rubbish newspaper and, and you know, <laughs> what this sort all of the key things like that bits and pieces like that yeah that's that's important to know as yeah, well like, yeah. i do feel because i live it because i live in the uk mostly now <laughs> i am quite out of touch with a lot of what's going on there especially the more recent politics and i, I need to right. more i need to spend more time reading the newspapers mm. um, it became a lot easier after the internet came along and you could read newspapers online yes, right. and things like that but um, i suppose it is fairly easy to lose touch isn't it it is easy to lose touch yes yeah um and it's easy to lose touch without knowing it mm. without being aware and suddenly something will pops up in a piece of text and you think well, what's that where did that come from right well, who's this bloke, and why is he? Why, why is everybody talking about him, and things like that? Yeah. So I need to spend more time watching TV and reading trashy magazines. <laughs> well, on the opposite side of trashy, let's talk about the books. Yanina, let's start with you, if I can, please. Um, let's talk about deceit. And could you give us a brief outline of the plot, just to kick us off? Yes, it's about uh, an ex-couple, a formerly married psychologist who is a British expat living in Iceland and he's got uh, this uh, detective policewoman who's his ex and he luckily escaped from the marriage but he didn't go far because she reels him in because it, this happens during pand the pandemic right. and the police force are having problems like you know we had all over the world they are short-staffed and she has a strange case uh, about needles and fruit mm -hmm. popping up in, in supermarkets. And she has to solve this, and she asks her husband, he, he's called Adam, and she is Sophia, and uh, they sort of get together and try and solve this crime. But he is also dealing with his uh, psychology practice, trying to work online with people who can, you know, get his yes, right. services online so he's he's struggling and juggling and i'm trying to keep the peace with his former wife and the, the 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 case gets very complicated and and she really needs him to get to the bottom of it that's a perfect introduction it's very true and of course the thing about tampering with food is that i mean it could be blackmail it could be somebody mischievous uh, it could even be terrorism so you know it's a really dark issue because it affects us all you know we're all frightened by something like that but the thing that struck me about your book is that um the humor it's a it's a funny book there's an awful lot of humor in this novel and that was really great i just wonder did you cultivate that or is that your sort of personality your kind of outlook on life that's my personality. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we, for this talk now, I was so feying, I was so really glad that it isn't, it's only audio because I've been laughing so much today. All my mascara's gone. And, <laughs> yeah. 
it's just um, as I've been laughing because I'm, I was reminiscing about the Danish uh, series, a uh, TV series, and it was just so funny. And you know, I tend to see the funny side of things, and I've been recommending the series to other people, and they haven't laughed. So I think it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and Solvig, harm yeah. is very different. Yes. Um, it's different in tone, it's different in style. And I think that illustrates something uh, that we should get out there straight away, I think, actually, is that there's, there's no formula for Icelandic fiction. Um, people kind of lump it all together now with this um, Nordic noir kind of thing, as if it's some kind of lump thing. that you. And, of course, mm-hmm. it's not. You're, both mm-hmm. your works are very individual. So tell us a little bit about Harm, please. Yeah, uh, Harm is uh, a six-book in a series, with the same main characters, but uh, each one, you know, is in a way independent. You know, you can, it can be uh, read as a standalone. Mm. But in Harm, um, I take uh, the readers to the Westman Islands. So uh, there are small islands on the south coast of Iceland. Mm. And uh, where a wealthy doctor called Ríkarður Magnússon uh, is found that in a luxury caravan. Uh, he was staying there for the weekend with his uh, much younger girlfriend and her friends, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, there are two couples, two other couples. And the girlfriend, Diliao, she is gone. She's missing. So... Um, yeah, it's not certain if uh, she has given him something, you know. Right. Or, or whether she's just panicked yes. and run. Yes. And we find out more about her and that starts yes. to explain that, that factor. Yes. Yes. As you said, yes. you, you set this story on a really beautiful island, little island. Part of an archipelago. The Westman mm-hmm. Islands. Um, I mean, you, you've used a cold rural location before and used the weather in that way in one of your novels. And um, this time it's summer. We were sort of making a point about Iceland and the climate and the fact, you know, it's it's not just a cold place. It's not just rural communities and so on. I mean, or does the story dictate the time and the and the place? Yeah, I think only one of my books uh, takes place in the wintertime. Yes. It mostly, you know, late summer, autumn. Yeah, Mm. it's the fox. It's, it's, you know, yeah. Which I think was the first one translated into English, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. It's the fourth, fourth one in the series. Yeah, right. Maybe it's just my need to uh, go out of the boxes. I hate boxes. Ah, ah. I always want to, you know... Crash through walls, down, break down barriers. Down and do something different. Uh, for mm. example, my, you know, Bukeir Fransson, my protagonist, he is uh, very different from the detective, the Nordic Noir cliché. Yes, of, right. Uh, a Scandinavian detective, you know, he is not depressed. He does not drink too much, and he is not divorced. He's, so, no, he's got a good family life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> usual worries about teenagers and so on, but the usual uh, good family life. Yeah, yeah, and you can follow his story and his family life through all the books. Mm. You know, in the first book, the actor, uh, his. Children, two children, they are like, uh, his daughter is like 13 and his son is like eight or nine. But they're more grown up when you meet them yes. in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Quentin, 
we started to get a, a sense of the different stories and the different styles in Harm and Deceit. Um, and of course, when you got the manuscripts for the translation, is there a, a guiding principle or a way of going about it? Um, I mean, how do you get to the essence of what you're reading? I suppose, in a sense, the themes, the characters. I mean, translation isn't a literal exercise, is it? No, it's not. It's it's um, it's very different from sort of technical or news translation, which is right. supposed to, it has to be very precise and accurate. It's more interpretation than translation. Mm. So you're retelling the story in the words the author would have used if they'd written it in English, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, it does. Are there problems with these two? Because these ladies both speak English very, very well. So do they come back at you? Uh, let's just not go there. <laughs> no, I don't. Thank you, Sol. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's very varied. Um, some authors want a lot of input, others not, others not at all, uh, and everything in between. So, it, yeah, it can be very, it, yeah, a lot of variation there. Yeah. Um, but Solvig and Yunina. I, I Sorry. my hand. I'm the difficult one. <laughs> <laughs> because she she used to live over there, you know. She, ah, she, yes, she's right. so much better in the English language yes. than I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, just so nitpicking, you know. It might be my character as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying well, we'll, we'll get on to those characters, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there were no, no real issues. So how does it work? Essentially, I just start at the beginning and carry on. Mm. Um, I don't tend to read the whole book. Right. Start with. Um, I prefer not to read the whole book because I, I want to be finding out what's going on as well. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I want a sense of sense of excitement. I want to know what's happening next. Yes. Um, yeah, I see, and of course that probably means that translation feels a bit fresher as well. In that, in the same sense as writing a novel would be fresher, fresher that same. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I, I've, I can't tell, but but I have a feeling it, it translates sure. a little bit into the into the work. If if I'm excited about it and wanting to know what's going, what's what's going on, and anxious to know find out what happens next, so I'll, I'll generally read a third of the book or to to just get a feeling for what's right. for the, for the for the main characters at least, and then just plow into it and then i have to come back to the beginning later on to 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 tweak mm -hmm. um, yeah especially speech in particular sort of mannerisms and whatnot that, that right characters have, have picked up along the way yeah i think we can all understand the process a little bit better from that so let's open it up a little bit i mean anybody can answer this question um who feels like it first but um it's about really what drives your fiction when you when you get going i suspect the crime itself for both of you isn't really the driving force it's not the the essential element of, of the book it's more about character or it's about society in, um, issues what's the impetus for you yeah Yanina uh, I have written 20 books and right. uh, they are more or less all about the same thing even whether they are fiction or non-fiction and um, whether they're for young adults or grown-ups uh, what's interesting for me is human relationships, mm -hmm. what makes people tick and how they function together. You know, it doesn't have to be a family, it can be in the workplace or friends, a group of friends or whatever. And those relationships, uh, I'm the typical type of person who sits at a cafe and studies everybody around them. Oh, you're a people watcher. Who is uh, having an adulterous relationship. and. <laughs> Who's the daughter? Who's the mistress? <laughs> so, yeah. You get it right. Very often. And if I don't, I sometimes, 
make my wife really humiliated because I go and ask people. <laughs> <laughs> That's only in you know very limited cases, though. Right. Yes. How about you, Sylvie? Yes, um, I think it's just human interest. You know, I am interested in life, in people, in mm -hmm. society, and uh, uh, I'm interested in power. Oh, you know, right, and um, all kinds of things like uh, mental health. I think a lot about that because I used to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a school for um, it was a kind of a rehabilitation mm -hmm. school for for people over 18 years old and uh, yeah whatever catches my mind for example in harm um, it was out uh, the harm was out in Iceland uh, 2021 yeah right and uh, I had read a lot about uh, ayahuasca. Yes, of course, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the thing. It's not a drug. It's, uh, it's hallucinogenic. Yes, yes. Right. And, and and then I started, you know, when I if something gets my attention, you know, I read everything I can about it. I right. listen to podcasts and, you know, talk to people. And I have never heard about this before. But now mm -hmm. it's so much. A year later, everybody are talking about it. And, you mm -hmm. know, they're yeah, yeah. doing all these tests. Uh, you know, even the big drug companies are, you know, doing tests and mm -hmm. trying to figure out if it's, you know, something. And then, like now, I'm writing a new book. And uh, uh, it was a little story, a little news uh, small news catch my eye, and uh, mm -hmm. then I started to think about it, and uh, now I'm in a way writing about it, you know, because uh, when I start to, so it's like an issue. You, you get passionate and, and, about something, and, yes, and that that yes, gets your interest, and yes, then you go. Mm. Yes, because uh, I can't. I have to write about something that I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. You know. I have to have uh, a strong feeling about it. Yeah. yeah. And I think a, a big part of this as well is character, of course, because I don't think you get good novels, crime novels or any other kind of novels, unless character is the real yeah. driver, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, crime is, is handy. Oh, I suppose, um, uh, yeah, in a sense, is crime handy? Um, mm -hmm. Because we talked about how crime wasn't your main sort of influence, your main driver. But is it handy because this is where you see people tested? Yes. Yes, exactly. On the on the edge, on the you know, yeah, on the cliff. When something happens and the snowball starts to run, you can tell I'm come from Iceland. <laughs> Talking about snowballs, <laughs> we, have oh, we did have we did have now. a few this year or last year. We did have a yes. few, yeah. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it's off the cliff. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I also was uh, I'm not terribly interested in crime or criminals. But, and I was writing, before I wrote uh, my first crime novel, uh, I had written 13 books which were not in that genre. Right. But I really kept on writing very similar books. I just threw in a bit of crime. And, you know, then it's a different genre. And then people know, aha, this is the kind of book this is. Because I was having difficulties uh, explaining to people what right. kind of book this is. It's about people and relationships and a bit of drama. And But when you can tell them it's 
a thriller, it's a, a crime novel. It's it's sort of easier to digest and to get through to people. Yeah, so, that's interesting because we do like labels, don't we? Yes, absolutely. But the books haven't really changed all that much. But obviously, there wasn't the crime in the other ones, so slightly mm-hmm. different, but still the same ground elements. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so looking at the, I mean, what about you, Quentin? You also write, of course. Yes, well, I, well, I have written books. Yeah, I haven't written one for, written one for quite a while. <laughs> okay, well, if you if you're reluctant to talk about it, we'll leave it there. Oh, Don't worry. I can talk about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it, it's. I feel it's, guilty about leaving people out. No, that's okay. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's very much about piling on the pressure. You mm. taking a, a normal, ordinary, law-abiding mundane person and then piling on the pressure until they start to do crazy things yeah absolutely that, that's that's the fun part <laughs> it is and you get no. this runaway plot and people are trying to catch up all the time it's brilliant yeah, yeah. people get desperate and angry and and they, yeah they do mad, do mad things yeah how far can you push them before they snap yeah absolutely and so you mean it's not very far not very far no that's true a lot of the time yes Although we'll get to crime and, and um, Iceland itself afterwards, I think, actually, as we go along here. But um, so looking at, at, at character then um, and some of the relationships in the book, which, which are crucial. I mean, they're, well, there's two sets of relationships, you know, they're really crucial. Janina, looking at yours, um, for instance, Adam and Sophia, um, tell us a little bit about their relationship. I mean, they're chalk and cheese. That's the phrase we would use in English anyway. Does that work in Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, they are extremely different. That's really why the the marriage didn't work because she yeah. is like uh, an Icelandic sort of stereotype. This strong, independent woman who gets things done, and he is very polite. He's also a stereotype of the old-fashioned Englishman. I, yeah. you know, I know he's not typical for you know the every man in England, but he's very courteous and mm. he is uh, you know polite and and is nice to everybody and they are so they don't really function really well together but they have a daughter so that when they got divorced Adam stayed he, he came to Iceland for his wife and he stayed for his daughter so uh, he is uh, like Quentin, he he speaks Icelandic fluently, and he is functioning in Iceland Icelandic society, but still drinks his tea and you know keeps his English habits. Yes. And his house is definitely his castle. But um, Sophia is like she has been called by her former in laws in the UK uh, the bulldozer because <laughs> she is a bit of a bulldozer. She gets things done. And well, oh, she doesn't yeah. allow anything to get in the way of getting things done. That's probably the way to put it. And when you talk about Adam with the stereotype, there's a little bit of humor in that. But also the fun comes from the relationship because she'll ring him up and she'll say, I want to talk to you about the case. And he says, oh, yeah, but what about COVID? And she says, that's fine. I'll be around now and puts the phone down. Is that, you know, and then she's yeah. calling on it, she's knocking on the door because she's not having anything get in the way with what they're doing. And that, that, that creates a lot of humor in the situation. She doesn't really take no for an answer. She doesn't really ask or want people to say, yes, I'll do it or no, definitely not. No, she just demands and she gets everything that she wants. That's why she is on. She is one of the top police women in Iceland. So, 
Yeah, right. she is definitely very different to him. And then they have this daughter who is uh, around 20, and she is like a mixture. She is very floating, and she's right. like a butterfly. She d- can't decide what to learn or study at the university. She's tried all different departments, and you know, she, her mother wants her to pull her trousers up and do something. Mm-hmm. And Adam is more understanding. But then, of course, Adam has a, a very big secret that he keeps from his daughter. And um, yes. we sort of know that it played a huge part in the divorce as well. So it's personal and this crime they have to solve too. And we don't find out about Adam's secret until quite late on in the book, do we? So yes. we're not going to tell anybody about that here now. Please. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, solving. So you yeah. chose a group of people, a group of people on holiday. Um, there's there's six of them, I think. In fact, isn't there? And they illustrate kind of strata and divisions in society. Now, particularly Ricard Delio. Um, they're the they're the couple at the center of this. Ricard, as you said, is murdered. Then we wonder about Delio's role in it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about that relationship. But I'm also interested in the the wider dynamic that you've got here. For instance, one of the things is you mentioned the caravan earlier on. The fact that he's staying in this luxury caravan. So you've got six people go on holiday together. Mm-hmm. Two of them stay separately, mm-hmm. and that's relevant, isn't it? Yeah, that's why he, he does not want to stay in the hotel with her friends, you know, because he doesn't, you know, feel good in their company. You know, they are very, very right. different from him. Mm-hmm. And you, you, and like Dilio, you maybe you see her as a gold digger in the beginning, but uh, there are more la- layers than that. Yes. Can you D- describe the relationship? You've got uh, Ricardo with his um, power and his education, and, and then you've got her, and she comes from a very different background. Could you talk about that a little yeah. bit, please? Yeah. She has a difficult background. Mm. And uh, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but she had uh, this mental problem. You know, she was, she was mentally sick mm-hmm. for a while in her life. And um, when I was writing this character, I was thinking about, you know, when people, we all have this prejudice against people that um, uh, have experienced experienced mental health problems. Yes. And, uh, you know, and these people, they still have to, they have to face this, amount of stigma from yes. society and um, in some ways you are uh, like branded for life yes and uh, even though everyone has the problems have, have, you know everyone we have all faced problems mm-hmm. uh, we still have this uh, need to look down on uh, who have had a more difficult time than us. I was thinking about that when I was writing this character, and I I find it uh, fascinating in times where we are in so many ways uh, more connected to each other, like yes, look at right. us, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in four places, anytime in history, we still find it so hard to treat 
others with empathy and uh, understanding. Yes. I hope I'm not giving too much up, but... Uh, no, I, I don't think you are, but I think we're aware right from the start that, that she has problems. And so yeah. when she reacts in a way that might seem odd, because yeah. her husband's murdered and she just vanishes. Yes. We have and to I'm understand not, that there I'm, might I'm, be... I'm not saying that she's not guilty because she is guilty yeah. of some yeah. things, you know, and yeah. she is. But, but there are but, other possible explanations. Yes. And, and we and only then, know that if we try to understand her yes. past and how and she that, sees how she's perceived by the world and people around yes. her. Yes. Yes. And that counts for some other people's in this people in this group too. Not only Dilia. Yes, very yeah. true. Yeah. And of course mental health also comes into your book as well, Yanina, because of, of um Adam's role and what he does. And yes. and the kind of psychology around the crime as well. So do you both think that um Crime fiction, in a sense, is a very good platform for dealing with issues. I know you, you still want to write exciting stories, but... Yes, oh, I yes. think uh, uh, crime writers have been doing this for a long, long time. I was once in Quentin's shoes. I was translating Ruth Rental novels into Icelandic. Right. Right. And uh, she was she is a good example of somebody who, who very often had main characters with very, very huge, really huge mental problems. Mm, and, yes. Uh, the, I, I think I translated two or three books by her, and, and they, they were all of this kind with somebody really disturbed in the focus. So I think it's been used a lot. It's, it's very handy if you want to have some extreme emotions and, and right. reactions to things. And sometimes it's people getting out of jail or getting out of mental institutions or whatever and it's you know this about adapting back into society so it's it's used a lot and understandably because it, it gives you scope to do a lot of interesting stuff in the novel yes right but but i think it's very dangerous to put you know <laughs> some mental health issues does not always go together with the Crimes. We were not right. Uh, not me or uh, Yoni now are talking about that. Just uh, it's just interesting. But of course, uh, the story, the plot, the excitement—you know—that's the main thing. Mm -hmm. That we we need to have a good material to work on. You know, to have something to say. Yes. Right. Yeah. What about when it comes to character? Um, these characters who say are unlikable. There are things about. Ricard, for instance, that we could assume, uh, well, no, not that we assume, that we get from the novel, that in a lot of ways he's not a very likable person. Is it, is it, you don't have to like people. I don't believe in liking people in novels necessarily, but you have to understand them as real people. Is it, is it difficult getting inside that sort of psyche and, and being able to write about a person like that? Yanina, I can see you want to jump in here. You don't agree about unlikable characters, do you? I'm, all my characters are cute. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I love my characters, the main ones, especially because they're all my workmates and I wake up in the morning and I have to look forward to. Right. So you have to live with them. them. Yes. I right. work with them all day. And so I, I tend to have people that I, I, that I sympathize with in the in the foreground, at least like in, in most of, of the 
well, all of my crime novels. I used to, I wrote this uh, series, five book series before the one with Adam and Sophia. And right. I had the main character who was like the Icelandic version of Miss Marple. And she was such fun to work with. And people are still asking me, when are we going to have another one of, of her? So I think... Because uh, we don't have those in later, English yet, do we? I'll have to... I'll have to uh, allow her to to come into a novel maybe with Adam and Sofia who knows ah right Solvig but um if I answer the question I would say no my characters are not all likable but mm. I need to understand them yes and I think that um it helps me a lot in my writing that I'm a trained actor and I used to work as an actor many years ago and uh, when you you have a role to work on, you 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 don't need to like the person, but you need yes, to right. understand. Yes, you know you don't need to uh, like Lady Macbeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to approve what she does. No, <laughs> what she does. You only have to understand why she does it. Yes, of course. While you working while you are playing the role of Lady Macbeth, for example, you know, you just have to understand what uh, what are the motives. Right. Mm. And it, well, then, as an actor, and of course, Janina, you wrote plays. Um, is there a discipline there that helps when it comes to writing the novels or is it a different thing? Because, I mean, I know from the point of view of being an actor, you're, you're reading somebody else's lines, but you're obviously you're working with dialogue a lot rather than than um, exposition. Uh, if I go first, uh, it definitely helps because when you're writing a play, you're sort of like the puppet master. You're uh, floating above and watching all the characters on the stage. Where are they? Who's right. coming? Who's going? And what's happening? And it's the same. I have the same attitude when I'm writing a book. I It's like uh, sort of watching over the characters and, and watching where they are and in connection with each other especially. And yes, I think it, it definitely helps having written plays. And yeah, uh, and I'm sure being an actor like Solvay even more helpful and it helps for me also dialogue because for me dialogue is yes, I very that. important to get it exactly like people talk, not like you see in so many novels right. which irritates me enormously when people are saying something no living person would ever say. Yeah, it's complete paragraphs of, of totally yes. finished sentences that make yeah. perfect sense. And, it, and it, yeah, of course, it's not the way we talk, is it? No, I hate it. <laughs> uh, in my case, um, you know, when you write a novel, write a book, you you're like God all, Almighty. You know, you get right. to <laughs> you're like it's your God. world. Yeah, you 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 control the whole world. But as an actor, you are you have to you have to like band to. Which is the the way that the director wants to go? What right. is his you know view on the play and with the whole group? And you know, you have to be careful not to step on the furnitures or players, <laughs> and you have to remember remember your lines, of course, and you know, be all in there. Mm. I'm just joking, but uh, 
for me as a writer, it gives me a lot to have this uh, education and training because I read out loud when I write. Right. Yeah, the characters. Yeah. yeah. So it will sound, you can tell if something sounds false in dialogue, as, as yes, you say. Yes, yeah, I have right. to feel it in my mouth, you mm. know, to, if, if, if the words are right and uh, suitable for the character. Mm. Yeah. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. Quentin, are there things about, uh, I don't know, the tone of a novel or, or in translation that are, that are difficult in particular? I, I wonder, for instance, is humor more difficult to translate? It can be very difficult to translate, especially if it's the old-fashioned Icelandic bone-dry humour. Right. But if you don't know it's there, then it just goes right over your head. And um, so you've got to find a way of somehow, once you get that, you've got to find a way of making that work in English. You've got to find, yeah, you have to sort of lay hints, uh, but, you, but without overdoing it. Right. Um, it's rarer these days, that old-fashioned humour. Um, the difficult, the really difficult stuff to translate is, right. is, is plays on words. Is any kind of a pun? Yeah, of course, right. It becomes enormously difficult, and then you have a choice of either translating it directly and being faithful to what the author wrote, in which case mm -hmm. it's not funny because it doesn't work, or coming yes, right. up completely different um, and diverging from what the author wrote, but which is funny, which was the intention to start with. So, and generally I'll go with the, the later option and just put in something completely different that does actually work. But fortunately, there aren't all that many jokes in crime fiction. <laughs> <laughs> no, I suppose not. it's more about the humour in the relationships and things. Isn't it? yeah. It's not out and out jokes as such, yeah, which of course yeah. are complicated to retell. Um, I did, I remember a story, I, I'm sure you did one with Dr. Noir um, when Silence came out. Okay, which yeah. is Solvig's previous novel. And one of the things you talked about was the title. And I think this, for me, illustrates some of the issues around translation. So could you talk about that, please? Yeah, the original title was Fjörtrar. Right. Um, and the, the Icelandic publisher decided it should be Shackles. Right. Um, but in, shack in English, a shackle is a, is a, very is a much very. more specific item. Whereas in Fjörtrar in Icelandic, it, it can be a shackle or it, or it can just be a binding. Right, I see. Tie yeah. or something like that. So it's a much looser, a much yeah, it's a much looser yeah. term. So you can interpret it different ways. Yes, yeah. Yes, and we did. We didn't want to go with anything that would give a make it sound like it was a bondage novel, because Amazon is absolutely full of that kind of stuff already. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose it is. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and that, that's essentially why we went for silence rather than um, anything that, that the ties that bind or anything like that. And the ties that bind was an option, but that was. No, that's the Bruce Springsteen song, but that's been used yes. so many times already. Um, and anything with bondage in it was definitely out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, think... there are no shackles in the book. Yeah. No, right. Because as you say, they're very specific. They're metal chains and... and... Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's, a, it's a metal handcuff type things. Yeah, we know exactly what they are in English. Yeah, I was working on the book. Think where where are the shackles? Oh, there aren't any. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and when I got the first cover, you know, to mm -hmm. look at uh, it shackles, it was yeah. shackles, and I yeah, was right. like, why? Why shackles? <laughs> <laughs> because uh, translating it then at that point. Yes, I see. In Icelandic. Yeah, but I'm very happy with silence. You know, it captures the whole thing. 
It's a very yeah, I was very idea. pleased with that cover. That yes. came out really well. Yes, yeah. I was very happy with that one. It's one of our better ones, I think. Mm-hmm. No, the covers are very good. I like the covers. We've got the two latest novels here, and uh, yeah, they're very good. Um, on the point of um, writing, do, do, do you write what you want to write? Or do you write in a sense with an audience in mind? I mean, you've got the Icelandic audience, you've got a wider audience. Or is it impossible to write for an audience? You just write what you write. These two write what they want to write. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's completely right. And I, I used to write, before I turned to crime, I used to write quite a lot for young adults. Um, right. Then I was writing something I wanted the young people to read which uh, I was tackling things like homosexuality, like depression and suicide. And I wanted to write it, but I Mm. also wanted the readers of that age to have an Icelandic story about these uh, topics, not just to see them in American TV shows, etc. So they had something from Icelandic surroundings about these topics, but... I have always throughout, I was also a a journalist for 20 years Mm -hmm. before I became a full-time writer. And I have always, both in journalism and in my writing, been doing exactly what I want. So what a privilege. I'm really happy about that. And it does produce very individual novels. Well, certainly the first one anyway to see. Thank you. (laughs) I think it's really important. For example, even though I'm known as a crime writer, I wrote a mem- memoir right, yeah. years ago. And uh, my publisher were happy to publish it. It was, you know, short stories from my childhood. And, you know, it goes back and forth in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a real good thing for me as a writer to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It because I had the urge, you know, when it was in the beginning of COVID, I started to write. And I just needed to go back to... Right. So it became a time of reflection. So you got the chance to do that. Yes. Yeah, I see. You know, it just got into my mind when, uh, you know, I was watching TV and the airports were closing and everything was, you know, and and I knew that the world would never be the same. Mm. Then I, you know, I I had just started writing a crime novel and suddenly it wasn't important anymore I just yeah, needed I to yeah, write yeah. another thing a different mm-hmm. thing but now when things are it's not normal you know we have terrible things going on in the world mm-hmm. but but I, I now it's, it's now I can start to write a crime novel and I'm enjoying it because you have to enjoy the writing right otherwise you know the readers will always notice. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think you can tell because even when writers are writing and they, they're writing about bad things in places, yeah. you can still yeah. tell the love of the place and the yeah. love of the people mm-hmm. in the story, even when it's a nasty story in a sense, you know, mm-hmm. if the mm-hmm. writer's got that in there, if that intent is there. And I think that comes across in, in writing around the world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to ask you uh, a question about why is Nordic Noir popular. I dare say you've been asked to answer that one a few mm-hmm. times over the years. But I'm curious about the the influences. So let's tackle this in two ways. The first part is the cultural tradition, and that goes to the Icelandic sagas. And um, how much, I mean, they're important in European literature. Do they infuse your work? 
the sort of culture and the legend and everything else? Uh, do you just absorb them or are you conscious of, of reflecting on them in a sense? Uh, I'm not conscious of it at all. Right. I think maybe the only influence I have to admit to, which is I, I tend to favor short sentences. Mm-hmm. And the sagas, they are all in very short sentences. But I, I don't know whether that was because of choice, they wanted to write that way, the, or maybe they just didn't have enough skin to write on, you know, the cold <laughs> skin they needed. So they had to keep it short and to the point. But it's sort of uh, something I have always done. I always like, and especially now when I'm writing about Adam and Sophia, mm-hmm. I make her especially Icelandic by having... She she speaks in really short sentences. She cuts sentences, something yeah. other people would maybe say in one sentence. She splits into three. Right. And I think that's maybe the Icelandic saga influence, yeah. if there is any, for me. I agree with uh, Jonina that uh, I think I, I use a lot of short sentences and I go rather straight to the point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I use nature you know, to reflect things. Yeah, it's just uh, basic storytelling. And when you're brought up amongst people who like to tell stories, you know, sitting in the kitchen, yes. telling stories, you know, as a child, I was uh, from the year, year, age of six, mm-hmm. I was uh, on the east side of the country, you know, in that area that the fox takes place. Yeah, right. But uh, I stayed with wonderful people, <laughs> not, <laughs> not strange. <laughs> <laughs> Not the dangerous people, but, um, you know, there were storytellings every day. Right. You know, and imitations and acting. And, you know, uh, each person in this small area had, a, you know, knew a bunch of stories. And every small incident became, uh, you know, a huge story you know a big right. story and a long story mm. with that which was told in a in, in a lively way yeah and elaborate then, and you know yes the art of storytelling. thank you thank yeah. you yeah, yeah. and then you know when i was growing up there were books everywhere you know in my home yeah uh, in my family and uh then the there was a kind of a like a a it was a Kapoka bit. It's a the book car, you know. All right, right. Library. library, uh, mm-hmm. library. It took yeah. like twenty minutes to go there, but every Monday there was um, this huge bush filled with books. Right. So yeah, I we, went. We there. still have that service here. Oh, yeah, we it's come back. Just started mm-hmm. off here in Iceland, you know. So. Yeah. Sad to say. Because, yeah, there are so many more people who are housebound than that now who can't really get out. Oh, so it's yeah. really handy to have somebody calls. It basically calls at the door and they knock on the door and say, you know, come in for two minutes and look at the van. Yeah. So it's yeah. great to have that. Yeah. But, so, you know, it's just, you know, we read a lot of books or we used to read a lot of books here and tell stories. But so what's maybe that like more now? That then, because... than the Icelandic sagas, which mm. I've, of course, read most of it. Yeah. I know, and that's it, sort of like the more relevant part of this question to what I said in the first place is, is about more specifically crime fiction and, and how connected you feel to a Scandinavian tradition. And I'm thinking there about um, Per Valu and, and Maisoval and uh, 
then Henning Mankel and, and also Arnold and Dreiderson and, and writers like that, you know, um, mm -hmm. I mean, are they relevant for you or is it, is it? Uh... Absolutely. Uh, I read Definitely. them all when I was younger and right. I always, my connection to those, to the Nordic Noir is I tend to also deal with some social issues. It's, uh, I've written seven uh, novels which are in the crime genre and they all have like domestic abuse or uh, trans people whatever something from society that's being you know that people have various uh, opinions of yes and I try to deal with those issues and and sort of not preach but at least have them and hope my hope is always that it the books will entertain the reader, obviously, but also make them think about what the, the issues in the book and maybe talk to other people about these issues. Uh, yes, I I always have a, a slight plan. I don't want to preach to people, but I do right. have something on my mind when I decide which uh, topics to discuss in each novel. Issues that maybe are not usually discussed over a cup of coffee. Oh, right, but, right. Uh, I would like them to be at least uh, sort of on the edge of the novel. They're, they're not the main issue, but sort of they, they come up during the course of an investigation. Yeah, okay. Um, on a slightly connected point then, uh, we're talking about your books in translation, and I live in Wales. And I thought we were doing quite well for a while because there are more Welsh schools now. So you can learn in Welsh and that's good for English children as well. Anything that gives them a bilingual start in life. But actually the Welsh language is still struggling and there are fewer speakers now than there ever were. So I just wonder um, how the situation is in Iceland. I mean, your youngsters are growing up speaking English, aren't they? And probably less Danish than that now. But, um, but I mean, does that worry you? I suppose is the question I'm asking. About can the I start? Yeah, please do. I'm really worried. Right. Really worried, I have to say. You know, um, people are just getting, what can I say, shabby. Mm. Um, is it the right word? You know, it's just careless. Right. You yeah. know, I think we really have to think things over mm. and, and protect our language. Because if we don't have our language, what do we have? Yeah, and no, it impacts on all areas of culture. Of course, it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, even even Welsh poetry in English still has the Welsh Welsh rhythms and things in it, you know. And you can tell that if you, if you know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It is definitely a worry. I I spend one afternoon per week with my granddaughter, who's just turned nine, mm. and we are we we play and we we. She loves, especially these days, she likes to play school. So we yeah. have a class of dolls, and everybody's. Uh, doing exams and then we're marking etc and all of a sudden my wife comes into the room and says why are you speaking English and then my it's always my granddaughter she starts speaking English and she has you know she's fed on YouTube you know right, yeah. not by her parents willingly she just seeks YouTube and everything in English so all of a sudden she's changed the language uh, during our play and I sometimes really don't know it. it. I yeah. just switch with her. And yeah. So it is it is difficult and it's, it is scary. I think you've got two generations left. 
Oh. I think in two generations, then there won't be any Icelandic native speakers anymore. I'm almost happy that I will be dead by then. <laughs> well, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> okay. There are all kinds of um, very dangerous, unpleasant implications for this as well. Because you could wind up with um, a language that is understood by politicians and lawyers. And the whole business of government and the judiciary is, mm. is those, it takes place in this arcane language that ordinary people don't understand anymore. That's very true, because, of course, I mean, the history of the world is about using Latin, for instance, in the Catholic Church in order to keep ordinary people out. Exactly. Make sure that there was no understanding except what you were given. Yeah. You, you see this situation in, in, in many countries, but I, I think it's far more advanced in Iceland than, than anywhere else in right. Europe. Because I travel to Denmark and Holland and Norway and whatnot. And, yeah. Or I did until COVID came along. And you don't see the same thing there. Mm. You see young people who speak English and they speak Danish, or they speak English and they speak Dutch, and they don't mix them up. They speak one or the other. But in Iceland, everything comes into together. There, there doesn't seem to be the, consciousness, the, the separation between the two. Now we speak English, or now we speak Danish, or now we speak English, or now we speak Dutch. It's it, everything goes, and it, it's a very yeah. unhealthy situation. I agree, totally agree. Yeah, it's a slightly worrying note. I must admit, I, I did expect you to say you were a little bit worried about it. I'll be honest. I think, you know, I, I feel the same way as well. I said Welsh is, is an issue. And I don't think it matters whether you're a Welsh speaker or not. You should care anyway about the language and, yeah. and the culture and so on. But I, I, that's quite a dark picture, I think, um, of the way things are. Let's lighten it up a little bit then to finish off. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I've been about this for hours, so I, but I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we'll have a we'll have a chat about that someday because I think it's a very interesting subject. Um, but perhaps not for the crime story anyway. The one of the things that interests me is that um societies where there isn't a lot of crime, and maybe you'd argue that, that that's not true about Iceland because you've still obviously got misogyny and you've still got male violence, and that's the biggest crime anywhere, probably. Doesn't matter where in the world you are, that's probably still the, the biggest issue. But you don't have them. Um, you don't have murders very often. You have one a year or something like that. Why is it that that societies that don't have those kind of problems are fascinated by the crime? Can I start? Please. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I think because, uh, like I was telling you before, that I didn't have the urge to write crime when mm -hmm. the world was falling apart. Yeah. Right. Uh, when we are safe and okay, as we are fortunately and are so lucky for, to be most of the time here in Iceland, yeah, you need something thrilling, something exciting while you're just sitting in your cozy chair. You know, <laughs> you feel safe, but you're reading about all these things, and you know, and you you know get. Uh, the blood running in your veins and, you know, you get the excitement, but you mm. are safe. That's the difference. Mm. And I think that's the key. You know, uh, I started to write crime because I needed some change in my life. Mm. Um, and I needed something more exciting in my life. And I, I started to write and, you know, I got this excitement I was looking for, you know, and I didn't even have to leave the room, you know. Mm. I didn't need to divorce my husband and go to <laughs> India. You know, I was just in my room murdering people. No. And you still got your adrenaline so, rush. No. 
So I think that's the main thing. You you are safe, but you're reading or watching something thrilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I think that even if we don't have a lot of murder or really serious physical physically serious crime uh, in Iceland, everybody is dealing with something difficult. Mm-hmm. It can be financial. It can be in your relationship or all kinds of things that are burdening you. Uh, so I think it's a bit of escapism, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So even if, you know, you just spice it up a little bit with, you know, with the most dramatic crimes and having it really scary. But I think when you see, you read the book and something scary is happening and then everything is solved in the end and there's an explanation and things go back to normal. I think it, it's uh, the escapism that gives people, you know, a, a peace of mind yeah, um, comfort. All little woes, you know, mm-hmm. even if they're not murders on every corner. Mm, that makes sense. So what's next then? Um, Solvik, what's next for you, writing-wise? Yeah, I'm writing a crime story. You did, yeah, yeah. you did say yeah. so, of course. Uh, so it's just, yeah. You're into that next novel now. Uh, yeah, I'm into that, yeah. And so you, Nina? I'm not, not going to say anything about it yet. No, I, I could no, tell no, you, won't you? <laughs> no, just in the. I, I kind of guessed I wasn't going to be able to get something out of you there. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's funny. It's, some writers are, are happy to talk about it, and some don't like to, and especially before the ideas actually, you know, before it's all firmly down on paper, say a first draft mm-hmm. or something. It's it's almost as if people feel you can you can jinx it or spook it if you if you do something like that. Yeah, that's my you? feeling. You know. Yeah. yeah. The book isn't done until it's done, you know. It's take its time, you know. It's fair just, enough. Needs to now you made me scared to say something. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I jinx it. So I'm, I'm writing the third book in the in the series about Adam and Sophia. Right, and lovely. Now it gets even more personal because their right. daughter um, comes across a dead person and they are solving the crime. Uh, that made her traumatic. You know, she had this traumatic experience. So right. now the the ex couple get together to try and and solve the murder. That so it's the most personal. Yeah, it's more personal. And mm. this is book number three about them and my twenty first novel or twenty first book, ra- rather, not the old novels. Yeah, right. What about you, Quentin? I'm up to my ears in translation at the moment. For both for coroners and for, for other people, um, I've just finished uh, Lilia Sue that is uh, right novel in that um, Aurora series. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think, and I have another large manuscript that you well, I can see. Here. Yeah, I can see it in the background there. Um, and there's a couple of others in the pipeline as well. And a couple of tasters I have to work on as well for the, for people who. So I, I see what you were saying then, because you said about the translation work, you know, and you're not, you're not writing another novel, but at the moment you're just jammed up with the translation work. It looks like I'm, you are very busy, doesn't it? I am very busy. I have a day job as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's a few other bits and pieces going on as well that I better not say too much about right now. Oh, okay. Then we'll leave that for another time. Leave those tools until some other time. <laughs> Solvik, Janina. Quentin, that's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
Well, a really big thank you to Solvig Pals Dortier and Janina Leos Dortier and Quentin Bates for real insight into their writing and something of the Icelandic culture and what it is to translate books from one language into another. You can order Deceit or Harm, or both, from Amazon or direct from the publisher Coralus by clicking on the link on the program notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and subscribe with your favourite podcast provider. And please continue to listen. And if you want to contact me, please do. I'll be back with another interview very shortly. Film director Matthew Gentile talking about his film, American Murderer, which is out in the UK at the end of the month. In a few days, there'll also be part two of the January Review Show. And that's got titles by David Gilman, Joe Callahan, Peter Lovesey, and Ellie Griffiths, plus plenty more. But for now, bye and thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 